Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Tonight we're going to try to do something very difficult. We're going to try and do 10 chapters of the Bible in one night. Now, for those of you who come on Wednesday night, you're going to say, that's not possible. He doesn't even do one or a half a chapter at a night. But we're going to look at the book of Esther. Now, as you're turning the book of Esther, the easiest way to find it is open up to the very middle of your Bible. You'll find the book of Psalms. Then go to the left or towards the front, and you'll see the book of Job. The next book to the left is Esther. Or you could just look in the table of contents, because I told you last week, every Bible has a table of contents. As you're finding the book, let me tell you just a little bit about Esther. Esther is actually the Persian name for the woman that is the hero of this story. This is actually like a Persian fairy tale. So we're going to do more of a story tonight and a little less of that theological exploration, but there's theology in here for certain. Esther is one of those unusual books because it's one of only two books in the Bible that does not mention God, which is an interesting thought, and we'll have to give some consideration to that. Esther itself, being a Persian name, means the star or the morning star. So Esther was the star of this particular book of the Bible. Let's get right into it and see how we make out, all right? In chapter verse 1, it says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. King Xerxes actually was a historical figure that ruled at the time the largest empire in the world. He ruled from what we would call Turkey all the way to India and down into Egypt a large empire, a powerful empire. And in the midst of that, we have the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people at, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, but the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians had a different philosophy about leadership than the Babylonians. The Babylonians took the best minds, the brightest people, the, the people that, that were most capable in their entire empire and brought them to their capital city, and then mixed all the other people together so that they wouldn't have very much regional or ethnic identity, so to speak. The Persians basically thought, we don't really care. Just be loyal to the king. We don't care too much what you do. So actually, at this time, a lot of the Jewish people have gone back to Palestine. Not all of them, but a number of them have, under Nehemiah and Ezra, returned to Palestine. But Palestine was kind of a backwoods. And so a number of the Jews stayed in Persia and, in fact, live in Persia even to this day in a country we know a little more familiarly as Iran. Iran. By the way, another quick note about the Persians. We often think of the Romans as conquering the world. They never conquered Persia. So if you look at a map, you'll always see Persia is still there competing and still there today for good or for bad. At that time, in verse 2, it, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Suda, Susa. The citadel is like a castle city. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. So he had a big party for all the leaders in his entire country. Verse 4, for a full 180 days, about half a year, he displayed the vast wealth 
of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the city of Susa. So now he's expanded this 100 day, half day, half year banquet for all the leaders to a seven day, one week banquet celebration for all the people that live in the city where he lives uh, from the greatest to the least. So a little different group of people that are gathered there. The garden had hangs of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials in silver rings on the marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and other costly stones. So beautiful banquet setting. Blue and white were often associated with with nobility and leadership, purple was always associated with them. Just picture the fanciest banquet you can imagine. Wine was served in gold goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality, so they were all drinking a lot. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. <laughs> drink as much as you want. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been to a banquet where you just keep drinking? You don't know how much you're drinking? Not a good situation. I've been to something like that. Uh, queen Veshti, his queen, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palaces of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, high spirits, meaning he was a bit on the drunk side, he commanded the seven eunuchs who serve him, Muhuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Agbatha, Zathar, and Carcass. These are men who have given up the company of women to serve in the king's presence to take care of the women, including his queen. You can look it up and figure out what that means to be a eunuch if you don't know. To bring before him Queen Veshti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, she, for she was lovely to look at. So the king ordered his wife to come into a little dance, a little beauty contest for, for everybody. <laughs> but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Veshti refused to come. Now, we're not really sure exactly what was expected of this. Somehow it was considered by Veshti to be at the very least insulting, maybe demeaning, maybe just simply totally and completely socially inappropriate. All we know is she was insulted, truly insulted. And so she just wouldn't come. So the king became furious and burned with anger. Let's remember, we've got two elements that create this problem. First is, he's drunk. Not a good thing to make decisions or especially demands on your spouse when you've had too much to drink. It's really not so good to get drunk anyway, so the Bible will tell you that. Number two, he's got all his friends and all the people around him. So now we have pride, we have embarrassment, we have anger, we have frustration, we have humiliation, all built into this one situation. And so the king becomes angry. 
Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kashina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Muriz, Marcina, and Memucum, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom, he did make one good move. He asked some smart people what to do. It's going to turn out their advice is very self-serving, but it's best to ask before you make quick decisions, especially if you've been drinking too much and you've got high emotions. When we have high emotions, and especially if we add some, something that uh, confuses our minds, not a good time to make decisions. So he asked his friends, According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. We've got to do something about this because I gave her a command and she didn't obey. In verse 16, then Manukin replied, In the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. So not only has she embarrassed the king, not only has she disobeyed the king, but she has, in some way, he's saying, created a problem for everybody. Verse 17, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vesha to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. <laughs> so you follow what his concern is. He's not really even concerned about the king's embarrassment or about whether the king's decrees will be followed. How is this going to play out for me in my house with my wife? Now, to be fair, I don't know that king, Queen Vesti ever thought about what the implications of this would be for the entire empire. I don't know if she realized that her decision would somehow affect everybody, every man and woman living in the entire empire. And that as a decision that she was making individually, this was something that was going to have an impact on the entire empires full of women. Oftentimes we make decisions and we don't consider the consequences. Some of those consequences might be good. And I'll be honest with you, in some ways, I'm proud of Queen Vesta. I think what she did was a good thing. But even if it's something that we're proud of, we need to recognize that it has an impact and implication on others. Whenever we make a decision for the church, I always ask, what will the implications of this be going forward? If we say yes now, what are we saying yes to tomorrow? If we say no now, what are we saying no to tomorrow? What are the unintended consequences of the decisions we make? And particularly, what are the negative unintended consequences? We have a lot of that going on in our culture right now. People want decisions to be made, and they want them to be made quickly. But we need to talk to smart people. We need to, to discern what's going on. And, and what are we going to do so that we can come out of this exile we've been in in a safe way? All the passages we're looking at in this Bible study series are passages from the exile. 
this story is about Persia. And while it's, it's written for the Jewish people, it's written about the Jewish people when they were in a situation where they found themselves in exile. Right now, it feels like the church is in exile. It feels like you're in exile. I feel like I'm in exile. We can't do what we've been doing. We can't meet as we used to meet. And we want decisions to be made. And we want them to be made quickly. We need to talk to people and make sure that the decisions we make don't have unintended negative consequences. So let's see what happened. In verse 19, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. You see, once you make a rule in this kingdom, you can't bring it back. Now that's tough, isn't it? that Veshti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. <laughs> it's all about, you know, um, a marriage is, is a, a union of equality. It says that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And a woman is supposed to submit to their husband as the church would submit to Christ. It's a partnership. One is not supposed to be giving unreasonable and ridiculous commands like Queen Vestai was asked to come and do a little dance. And the other is, is supposed to show respect and honor for, for their partner both ways both ways. And unless we have that, we don't have a partnership. We don't have a helpmate, as the book of Genesis describes it. Uh, we have a, a inappropriate relationship. And in this case, it ended the, the, the relationship between Vashti and King Xerxes because it's saying you'll never see her again. I don't know if it was worth it for either one of them. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not either one of them, but it's a very hard thing. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin pr proposed. He sent dispatches to all the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. I really don't have the time to go into the relationship in the Bible between men and women too much, um, but this has raised the question, so let's talk about it for a moment. In the Bible, the position of equality was really one of difference of responsibility. So take the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was in charge of everything that had to do with the actions between other nations and other peoples and business and things of that nature. Sarah was in charge of the household. And while we would say, oh, well, one is better than the other, it was really just simply different. So Abraham told Sarah what she was supposed to do when they went to the kingdom of Egypt, even to the point of saying, pretend you're my sister and not my wife. Now, that's kind of a little weird. Different story, different time. But Sarah did as Abraham asked, because this was the area that he worked with. Sarah, on the other hand, had a different point where she was raising a child and a stepchild, her uh, Abraham's other son, and, and he didn't, she didn't like what was going on between her son and the stepson. And so she told Abraham she wanted the mother and the other child expelled from their community. 
Abraham didn't want to do this. In fact, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but God told Abraham to listen to Sarah. She was in charge of the household. It's understanding that each of us, men and women, but also as people, come to a relationship offering what we do best. And where the other person is better, we should actually give submission, if you will, to their expertise and their ability, their gifting, if you will, from God. And where the one is better, we should do the same thing. So the relationship between husband and wife, the relationship between friends, the relationship with Christians, all of us together, what we need to be looking for is what can the other one offer that makes us more complete, makes us better, completes ourselves, not competing. That's part of the problem we have with relationships. We think it's about competing. Who's, who's more important? Who's better? Who gets to say what? This was not healthy, what the king did, because he disrespected Vashti. But let's move on, because the story is not about Vashti. That's just the setup for the story, all right? And in some ways, this is also a story about God's providence. God watches over his people and engages in things, in some ways, behind the scenes. And maybe it was part of God's plan for Vashti to no longer be in the, in the position of acting like the queen so that another woman could become queen because that's what God needed. Now, we don't know that Vashti died. She wasn't executed or anything. She just no longer was in relationship with her, her husband because the disrespect they had for each other, or let me say it the other way, the respect they had for each other had been broken. And I'll tell you one thing, when respect is broken in a relationship, it's really, really hard to keep the relationship. Chapter 2. When King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. In other words, he realized he didn't have a queen. <laughs> kind of an interesting thing. Think about the unintended consequences. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm and bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Let's have a beauty contest, basically. There was in the citadel uh, of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So, uh, he's been around a little while. Mordecai has been around since, since the exile began, which is quite a ways back, uh, decades back. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadesha, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. So he raised this, this uh, basically niece of his, Hadesha. Okay? This young woman, who was also known as Esther, okay, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Um, Hadessa means myrtle, okay? And instead, Esther means star. So she's going to go from being uh, myrtle, a kind of common plant that we use for ground cover, to being the star. 
You'll never go from rags to riches, but she did. So it's a, it's a Cinderella story. It's the first Cinderella story, okay? Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So uh, he raised her as his own child. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So Esther was one of the women. We think there were probably about 400 or so that were taken to be part of this uh, harem for this beauty contest. This is like the original bachelor story. It's kind of a weird thing, but you see all the stories come back around again. Verse 9, it says she pleased him. She pleased Haggai. And won his favor, immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants and selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants in the, the best place in the harem. So Haggai likes her. You know, it never hurts to be friends with people who can influence our lives. That's just the truth. And in this case, it happens to be this guy, Haggai. Now, what did he do? Well, he gave her the beauty treatments everybody got, but he gave her special food. So now she's going to look and appear healthier. Food makes a lot of difference. We're, we're, we're struggling now with what do we eat. And in some cases, people are eating better than they used to when they went out all the time. Uh, but in some cases, they don't have enough uh, money to buy the food, or, or maybe uh, the food isn't as available. Food can make a difference in our nutrition. He gives her the best food, and then he gives her these attendants. Now, the attendants don't sound like very much, but not only does she have people attending to her, but they're the people that come from the king's palace, so they know what the king likes. That gives her a very big inside edge. She's being taught by these people what she needs to know to please the king. So they've kind of made an easy path for her to find her way to the top fixed the contest, so to speak. <laughs> Verse 10, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, um, this isn't like in our culture, which is a fairly open culture, where saying we're a Christian is a matter of, oh, we might be embarrassed or, or people might treat us a little different or something like that. I know when I say I'm a pastor, oftentimes people react to me different than if I was just somebody else doing something different. This is a situation where revealing what your national identity is could actually, and we'll see this later, could actually lead to your death. Um, there are times in the early Christian church when revealing that you were a Christian could mean that you would end up being executed. And Pastor Lisa talked about the sign of the fish they used to make so that people would know they were a Christian, but no one else would know what that symbol meant. There are times when we may reveal, or, or excuse me, we might conceal who and what we are a little bit because it will be to a better advantage in the long run. If we're doing it because uh, we're afraid to show who and what we are and who we serve and who our God is, that's a different story. Many people became martyrs and died because they were willing to, to stand up for and, and say who their faith was. And that includes even people in our modern day era. But that doesn't mean that it's always best to say exactly who we are at all times in every way. Um, I had a woman who used to cut my hair 
don't get my hair cut now, but this is a different woman that does it now. Anyways, at first she didn't know who I was. And that allowed us to, to develop a repertoire to where she liked me as a client. Then after a little while, she came to understand who I was because you can't stop being who you are very much. And eventually we talked about who I was. That gave me the opportunity to talk to her about God. She hadn't gone to church in years and there were reasons for it in her own personal family. But she wanted to talk to somebody about God and she needed somebody to talk to about her own life and family. I was able to do it. So sometimes there's a place to reveal and there's a place to conceal. In this case, it's better, according to Mordecai, to conceal for a little while. In verse 11, every day she walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out he walked back and forth. Let me start over again. Verse 11, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai kept checking on her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to see King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. That's a lot of preparation an entire year, which also means, by the way, that King Xerxes has now gone without having a wife for quite some time. And this is how, that, that was because he made a decision that was foolish. You see, unintended consequences. Got to be careful about those. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything the young woman wanted, she was given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14, in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shehegaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. A concubine was a young woman, um, excuse me, but this is the PG part, that was available to the king for... <laughs> physical pleasure. Let's just leave it at that. They weren't a wife and they didn't have any rights. A queen had rights. That's why Vashti wasn't executed. Queens had rights and authorities that a simple concubine wouldn't have. So these women had a one in about 400 chance of being the one selected to either be the wife of the king, the queen of the nation, or to end up being someone without a family without much of a life. That's not very good odds, but that's what happened. We don't really get the idea they had a choice, but maybe they did. When the term came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted her, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She's smart enough. Haggai, what do you think? Ask the people who've been there before, who know what they're doing. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. It's always helpful to be a likable person, a person people like. Some people seem to be abrasive on purpose. Esther was the kind of person everybody liked. She was charming, beautiful and charming. What a combination. In verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So big party, Esther's won the contest. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful good things. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. In verse 20, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. We will do what our parents have raised us to do for the rest of our lives. It's a whole nother sermon, but it's, 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 it's true. During the time, that time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So two of his secret service agents are going to try and kill him. But Mordecai, in verse 22, found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Okay, we're in chapter 3. We've got some cover, ground to cover. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. So we're in different location, different scene. Haman is now being honored by the king. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. We don't know why he was honored, we just know he was. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, it's important to note, it doesn't say because of his faith. It doesn't say that this is like Daniel or, or someone like that who uh, didn't want to diminish his faith or something of that nature. It just appears that Mordecai doesn't respect Haman, maybe because he's uh, Agagite, uh, they were enemies of the Jews, or maybe he just didn't like him, or maybe he just was too proud himself. We don't know. Uh, we don't know. Mordecai's making a decision that could or would affect other people, but he's doing it for reasons that he doesn't share. In verse 3, the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? See, this is not Haman's command, it's the king's command. Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Right now, we have people who are following the government rules, and we have people that aren't. We're doing all these things uh, on, on the internet because we're trying to stay connected to our church, but we haven't opened our doors. Some have. At this point in time, we're not doing it because it's not healthy. We're not, we're, we're, we're not going about and saying, we'll do whatever we want. Nobody can tell us what to do. We're trying to keep the safety of our people in mind. At the same point in time, at, at some position along, along this journey, there will be a time where things will have to change and change back to where the church can meet. Someone said, what if the church stays closed till January? I said, I don't think the church will be okay with staying closed till January. 
So this is a balance. People can only rule if there's somebody that will listen to their rule. And people can only be ruled if they're willing to allow the person in charge to rule. So that's what's going on here. And right now, Mordecai doesn't respect Haman. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Okay, so it's not just that it's being disrespected. It's not even just that uh, he's disobeying the king. He's just personally angry. A lot of pride in this book. A lot of, a lot of concern about, about, about a self-aggrandizement. In verse 6, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So, again, unintended consequences. Mordecai thinks his actions will just affect him, but now they're going to affect everybody related to him, the entire people of Israel and the empire. That's a lot of people because Mordecai didn't want to bow down to Haman. And maybe he had a reason that was good, but we don't have it shared in this book. Unintended consequences of one person's decision. And why did Hammond do that? Well, because Hammond's a very small and, and sad little man. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Hammond to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month the month of Adar. This is like um, rolling the dice. They actually used bones and how they landed determined what, what the decision was. So they're trying to decide when are they going to carry out this, this uh, revenge that, that Haman wants against the Jewish people. And they picked the 12th month, the month of Adar, which is similar to our month of March. Then Haman said to the king Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. There's a group of people, it doesn't say how many, it doesn't say this affects tens of thousands of people or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, he just says there's some people, a group of people, so some problem people. In verse 9, he says, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So <laughs> he's going he's to give some money to the king if he can kill the Jews. Now again, he only has one person, Mordecai, who refused to bow down, but he's going to kill an entire people for that. And quite honestly, if Haman had decided just to kill Mordecai, we don't know what the consequences in the long run would have been in this book. But at this point in time, things have changed and taken on much larger concern because of the decisions of one person, Mordecai, and then one person, Haman. So now we're going to get the consequences of one person who happens to be the king. In verse 10, he says, So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamedta, the Agagite, the enemy of the, of the Jews. Okay, so a signet ring um, was you'd push that into the wax. It was a unique ring that was kind of like uh, more than a charge card. It gave orders and it gave authority from the king. Only the king had that ring. No one else could wear that ring. That, that would be 
uh, that would be treason, okay? So it was a unique ring, and he gave it to Hammond. So when Hammond made a decree, he was now making it in the name of the king. And he said to him, in verse 11, keep the money, the king said to Hammond, and do with the people as you please, okay? I don't need your money, um, but I don't need any people who are in rebellion either. Now remember, all the rules, once they're made, can't be taken back. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Hammond's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, the various provinces, the nobles, the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring by Hammond, who's got the ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So a couple things just came out in that. First of all, this is the first month. They're going to have um, uh, almost a year to prepare this. The Jews are going to have almost a year to anticipate the horror of this. And the second thing is, why would they do this? Because they get to get all the stuff the Jews own and take it. Some people think that's the reason why the Nazis persecuted the Jews, was simply to get their stuff. It's really sad that sometimes people will hurt other people just over money. Really, just over things and stuff and possessions to plunder somebody else's stuff. Um, means we value them less than things. And nothing should be valued less than a person, certainly not things. Verse 14, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Hammond sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The people were like, what? Why are we killing the Jews? I don't get it. What did they do wrong? Because the Jewish people weren't doing anything wrong right then. And these two people sat down to have a drink. <laughs> Seems like they always want to sit down and have a drink. And it doesn't seem like this king is the smartest king, which, by the way, he also went to war with Greece and lost right around the same time. Whole different story, different issue. But he, he wasn't in some ways the smartest of kings. Chapter 4, we've got a ways to go. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter into it. In the king's um, uh, palace, everybody had to be dressed as if everything was wonderful. We only have good things. It's called the CEO complex. Never tell the boss anything wrong. Because you, you have the danger of having a backlash that could get you executed or fired, in this case, executed, right? So in the palace, everything has to be good and happy. There's no problems here. Everything's fine. We need people, and especially people in power. We need people that can speak to them and can tell them the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. Anyways, in every province, in verse 3, to which the edict and order of the king came, there was mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes, which was a sign of mourning, saying, I am worth nothing, 
Everything I own doesn't matter. And it's a turning to God in prayer. Even though they don't mention God and they don't talk about prayer, it's a sign of, of committing ourselves simply to God, saying nothing we own is going to help us. In verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. He couldn't come into the palace in that sackcloth and ashes, so she sent him clothes, but he wouldn't wear them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tender, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She can't go out of the palace, he can't come in. He could have come in if he was dressed right. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. That's where business is conducted. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead him for her people. It's helpful to have people in high places, right? Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So, first of all, King Xerxes hasn't seen his wife for 30 days. That's not healthy, all right? But second of all, if she goes into his presence without his, his invitation, unless he extends the gold scepter, she's put to death. So that's a pretty big risk. Mordecai wants her to go and talk to the king, which makes sense. She has the king's ear, but she doesn't because they don't have that kind of relationship, really. When in verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Wonderful little passage, okay? First of all, it says... God is going to have his way, and he will deliver his people. He will deliver us from this coronavirus. He will deliver the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God's will will be done. The question is, what will we be doing in that will? Will we do our part or not? If we do our part, then we have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Right? We're talking about kingdom living in our sermons. We have a place in the kingdom of heaven if we do what God wants and needs done. If not, God will have his way anyways. It's not as if it all depends on us because God will raise somebody else up. If Moses didn't do what he was supposed to, God would have raised up someone else. If David didn't do what he was supposed to, God would have raised up somebody else. If Peter didn't do what he was supposed to, God would have raised up somebody else. If Pastor Tom doesn't do what he's supposed to, God will raise up somebody else but for the person who refuses God. God is life. 
When we reject God and what God needs, we reject life. Who knows if you weren't born for a time such as this to do something that God needs done. And that can happen every and any day. Okay, verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Three days, isn't that interesting? Three days in the tomb, three days in the belly of the whale. Three is a very powerful number. And, and fasting is a way of showing to God that we're willing to give up anything to call upon God. Most of us don't fast much, but we should. I and my attendants will fast as you do. She's not asking others to do what she won't. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's willing to die. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. In chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So now we don't know if she was actually standing in the entranceway, because maybe that was okay, that she could walk past the door, but coming in was the problem. But anyways, he did extend the gold scepter. So now she has permission to come in. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. No king will give away half the kingdom. That's just a rhetorical statement they make. Verse 4, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Oh, wait a minute. Let me step back a minute. You know husbands and wives own everything 50-50. So if she's queen, maybe she already owns half the, well, different story, different, different time, right? I want to have a banquet for you and Haman. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As we were drinking wine, the king asked, again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them, then I will answer the king's question. So two banquets she's going to have them come to. Is she stalling because she's afraid? Or is she simply going through the process? We don't know. Haman, in verse 9, Haman went out that day in happy and in high spirits. But then he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He wasn't going to do anything right then and there. He's happy, but he's angry. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and the officials. You know, bragging, pride. I mean, I'm the greatest. I am the greatest. Now, it's true. He is all of these things. But pride goes before falls, what the Bible says, and he's headed for a big fall. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. <laughs> I'm the chosen one. 
But all this gives me no dissatisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. What do we need to be happy? He has everything. He has all the wealth he could imagine, all the power. He has all the accolades. If at this point in time, Haman could just find satisfaction, this whole thing would melt away and he would go on with probably a very happy life. The only thing that gives us total satisfaction, the peace which passes all understanding, is the presence of God in our lives. And everything else, all the possessions, all the glory, it's never enough. It's like what Ecclesiastes says, striving after the wind. We never feel satisfaction in our soul. Only God can give that through the power of his Holy Spirit within us. Without it, we're never satisfied. There's always one more thing, and that's all he had is one thing. This little issue with Mordecai. But he made it the whole issue. And it's going to bring his destruction. In verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggested delighted Hammond and he had the pole set up. I'm going to kill Mordecai. And he feels good about that. And we feel good about killing anyone. Revenge is mine, saith the Lord. Those who live in revenge never, ever are satisfied, never are content. So long as you're raging, so long as you're holding a grudge against anyone, they have the victory and you have the loss. Because honestly, when we hold a grudge, the one that hurts is us, not the other person. No matter who we are, even if we're second in command of the kingdom, Chapter 6, that night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Interesting. That's a particular night he can't sleep. God causes him not to be able to sleep, and so he wakes up and he reads a book. Okay, It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Just happens to turn that part of the story of the Chronicles. You know, reading history, uh, that could put you to sleep. I get it. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Oh, that's right. He saved the king, didn't he? The king said, who is in the court? Hamid had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants, this is a great, this is a funny chapter. His attendants answered, Hammond is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Hammond entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now he knows he's thinking Mordecai, but Hammond thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? <laughs> so verse 7, he said, for the man that the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden and one with royal crest placed on his head. In other words, have him dressed up and act, be like the king. Wow. Not only is he, he, he's not satisfied with being second in the kingdom, he wants to actually take the seat of the king. Never satisfied, striving after the wind, never good enough, never enough, never enough. 
Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and heed him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gates. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on the horse back through the city gates, proclaiming before him, this is what he has done for the man the king delights to honor. Ooh, wow, that's got to hurt. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. You see how everything turned so quickly? So quickly, we think that things are permanent and things are going to be the way they are forever. And then all of a sudden we had a virus, but it could have been something else. We, we think we're on top of the world and then all of a sudden we're on the bottom. We think that, that somebody's a loser and all of a sudden they're a winner. Fascinating how things change so quickly. Now remember what his advisors and wife had told him before, set up a pole to impale Mordecai. Well, now they say, his advisors and his wife said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. <laughs> you can't win against the Jews. God's on their side. Now, you know, they could have told him that year, a long time before that and saved him all this grief and saved everybody else's grief. But they were afraid of Haman. And so they, they held their tongue. And now it's leading to not only his destruction, but it will lead to theirs. Remember the CEO complex? Somebody needs to tell people, even people like Hammond, you're not correct, you're not right. They should have told him this the first time, and instead they didn't. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Hammond away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Oh yeah, the second banquet. Chapter 7, so the king and Hammond went to the queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and it pleases you, grant me my life. That's my petition. And spare my people. That's my request. So all I want is to live and my people to live. Now remember, no one knows she's a Jew. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Wow. If all we had was economic ruin, I wouldn't say anything. But they want to kill us too. Kings, I don't even know what that means in our current situation. Verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Just picture this scene. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. That guy sitting next to you. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. Now he's just going, oh my gosh, I've been played for the fool. This, this, 
this guy I trusted and I gave all this stuff to and I honored in every way, he wants to kill my queen and her people. And in so doing so, he wants to kill hundreds of thousands of people. I had no idea how much Hammond played me. So he did the right thing. This time he thought. Instead of answering immediately, he went into the garden. When you're ready to blow, don't. With couples, I'll say it's like taking a time out. There's a point at which you get into an argument with someone and it gets so rage-filled or, or so filled with energy even that we're about to say something, what I call the nuclear button. Say something about our, our spouse that we know will hurt them deeply forever. I call it the nuclear option. It's the thing we don't ever want to see or do. Take a time out. Just tell them, I'll be back in a little while. You've got to tell them you're going to be back or I'll say they freak out more. I'll be back in a little bit. I just need to cool down. We need to cool down. We need to let our anger subside and then make the right decision. Xerxes has made some really wrong decisions because he was drunk, because he wasn't thinking, because he let friends influence him. Now he's going to take a moment to think about it. Even though he's angry, he's furious. Hammond, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now he's going to ask the Jewish Queen Esther to save him. Verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Hammond was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now we don't know if he was getting down on his hands and knees and begging. Um, somebody said an angel pushed him. All we know is it doesn't look this way to the king. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the king while she is with me in the house? So he thinks that Hammond's trying to, you know what, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Hammond's face. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Oh, by the way, I happen to notice a pole reaching up to 50 cubits stands in Hammond's house. This is like a hundred and some odd feet in the air. He has set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. He was going to use it to execute that guy that, you know, helped you and saved your life. That's how bad this guy is. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Hammond on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. <sighs> wow. There are people just waiting to take somebody down, especially people they feel has done someone wrong. They're just waiting. This all could be worked out if people would put their pride aside for a little bit and talk to each other and consider the unintended consequences. We got ground to cover, so I'm going to keep going. Chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So now she's got everything. She's got all this money that Haman used to have, which was a lot. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. So now he's sitting at the king's court. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, you know, the one that gives him the power to do whatever he wants, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Hammond's estate. Mordecai is also gone from, he wasn't poor, but now he's gone to being incredibly powerful and wealthy. Esther again pleaded, and by the way, Mordecai in all of this wasn't pleading for his life. He was pleading for the life of the entire Jewish nation. He made a mistake. Or maybe he didn't. We're not sure how that works. 
but but he made a decision that led to the that could have led to the destruction of the whole people of Israel. So now he's had to make some decisions that will hopefully lead to a better place. In verse three, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended this gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So she had risked her life again by going to the king. If it pleases the king, she's charming and she's beautiful. So he's, <laughs> if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamantatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Okay, King Xerxes in verse 7 replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman has attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on a pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked, including the one that says that the, that the Jews can be attacked. So go ahead, write something to fix this. Mordecai. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, this is now three months in, the 12th month is when all this will happen. They wrote out Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles, the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. The orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of the King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves of their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. So this statement says that the Jews can defend themselves, basically. All right? And it's going to happen at the exact same time. Now what happens is, is all of a sudden, the authority and power of the king shifts sides. So it's not just that the Jews can defend themselves, it's that the enemies of the Jews go from being being favored by the king's officials and soldiers and everything else to being on the bad side of that. And the Jews did have their enemies. We all have our enemies who are waiting to hurt them and plunder them. When Mordecai left the king's presence in verse 15, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe and fine linen. He's dressed like a king. And the city of Susa had a joyous celebration. For the Jews 
It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Many people became Jews because they were afraid of what might happen if they were on the wrong side of this situation. I could spend probably an entire Bible study talking about how Christianity came to the world behind the armies of Europe. Now, some people would call that bad. Many people became Jews and became followers of God because of the physical fear they had. It's an interesting question, just to ponder. How much does authority and power help to promote the Christian faith. Something to think about. On the 13th, it's not a modern concept that we're real comfortable with, but it's been a concept for hundreds of years. We can look at uh, how Islam conquered the Middle East by the sword and changed the religion from Christianity to Islam. And Christianity changed the world of and the religions of South America and North America and Africa and parts of Asia on the armies of Europe. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, this is chapter 9, by the way, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack them, determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. So they didn't have any, uh, they, the Jews had allies, but their enemies didn't. All the nobles of the province, the satraps, the governors, the kings and ministers helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai's now got the king's signet and he's dressed like a king. So they're going to do what he says, and they're going to help the Jews. That, that shifts the power a lot. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the province, and he became more and more powerful. Does it matter to have power in the government for the advantage of God's purposes? Wow. We're in a democracy, and I would say to you right now, neither the Democratic Party or the Republican Party have a hold on being Christian. Some ways Democrats are more Christian, some ways Republicans are. Um, but we do want people who believe in God. We do want people who, who believe in our principles and our values because they're supposed to represent us. And if Christianity really is important to us, we want to vote what we believe. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword killing and destroying them, and they did what they had pleased to those who hated them. There's a lot of people died. That's not really a great thing. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Peshadatha, Delphin, Ashpatha, Puritha, a bunch of other people whose names I can't pronounce. They were the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. So they took out Hammond's sons because, you know, the sons are just waiting for revenge. And that's probably what they're thinking. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, that's a fascinating thing. They didn't want their actions to be seen done for monetary gain. 
because money, if that becomes the end result, can make our motives look very dark and very suspect. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Hamah in the citadel of Susa. What they have done in the rest of the what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. So he's letting Esther do what she wants. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out the stay's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. Wow, tough stuff. One more day of this. So the king commanded this be done. An edict was issued in Susa. They impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. I'm sorry, this is getting to be quite PG. Uh, maybe not the best for young children. They didn't lay hands on the plunder. This isn't about money. This isn't so that people can get money. It's about protecting themselves. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews, verse 16, who were in the king's provinces, also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. So this is a lot of people died, 75,000. Now, the Jewish people would have been in the hundreds of thousands, but 75,000 is a lot of people. A lot of people. That's how many enemies the Jews had. Sometimes when it feels like people are out to get you, it might be true. Because um, there are some people that are, for whatever reason, uh, looking to bring destruction on us. Satan has his, his demons and his agents in this world. I need to move on. i got to get this done. <laughs> this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. 14th day would probably be a Sabbath day, right? Two sevens. Then the Jews in Susa, however, the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So there's an extra day. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. So this is Purim. It's a holiday. It's kind of like Christmas in a way, um, a celebration of life. And, and Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far. Verse 21, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Like Christmas, we give gifts to each other, but we also give gifts to the poor. It's a celebration of the fact that they have been saved, and they see their salvation as coming from God. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadath the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, remember the lot, that is the lot for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders 
that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim. The word pure, the lot. Okay, so it's like Dysum. It's kind of weird, but anyways. Because of everything in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, for the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe the two days every year in a way prescribed at the time appointed. These days shall be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province and every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And why? Because they're really celebrating God's province, God's ability and willingness to provide a way to bring us salvation, which he still does today. God still is holding us and caring for us. I'm going to read fast because I've only got a few minutes. Queen Esther, daughter of Abahal, along with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to the times and fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. And so the queen made the decision. Now, 10th chapter, fortunately, is a little short one. 10 chapters, why don't you note that, 10 chapters. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant stores. And all acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, kind of like Joseph. Remember that story in Egypt? Second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his fe many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So, a lot of people in this story made decisions that had unintended consequences, but God throughout it all intended it for good. And we can make decisions to help turn the thing that we do wrong around. So King Xerxes fixed the problem he created. Mordecai fixed the problem that he created. And God, in his providence, made a way for all of this to occur. Haman, on the other hand, refused and, and chose instead to stay on the wrong path instead of repenting and turning around. And it led to his destruction. Story of Esther. It's kind of a fairy tale in the Jewish Bible in a way. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying it's like, like um, Cinderella. So let's pray, shall we? Dear God, we know that sometimes we feel like our lives are out of control. Sometimes we feel as if the world is going on and we have nothing to say or do about it. Sometimes we feel that brokenness is winning and evil has the upper hand. But we know, Lord, that your providence is still in force. 
that you hold this whole world in the palm of your hand and that what you want and your will will come to pass. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Your people will not go down to destruction. And if we turn to you, even the decisions we make in haste or because we're, we're distracted or because we have the wrong ideas, even those decisions, you can turn our hearts around and we can prevent the unintended consequences. Help us to be wise. Help us to seek good counsel. Help us to be open to what you want to share with us and your revelation and power in our lives. And free us from this virus that we might live again to honor you. Because for this day we were created, Lord. Show us what it is you want us to do today and forever. And we pray this all in Jesus' name who said to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's good to see you all tonight. Well, I don't see you, but you see me. Maybe I'll see some of you on Facebook. May God bless you and be with you and hold you in the palm of his hand this day and forever. Go in peace. Amen.